Welcome to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. In each episode, we bring you new ideas and insights from some of the greatest business and thought leaders to help you think more deeply and lead more effectively so that you can be a great leader too. Here again is your host, best-selling author, speaker, and unconsultant, Bryce Hoffman. Hello, Thinking Leaders. My guest today is Dave Snowden, a world-renowned expert in the field of knowledge management who is most famous for creating the Kinevin Framework. Snowden developed this sense-making framework to help guide decision-makers when he worked at IBM. He went on to publish numerous articles, papers, and book chapters on Kinevin. It's one of my favorite tools. I talk about it in my own book, Red Teaming. And he is the founder and chief scientific officer for Cognitive Edge, a consulting firm specializing in complexity and sense-making. Dave, welcome to the program. Pleasure to be with you. So... I want to start, I understand that you have a new publication out that's published in in conjunction with the European Union called Managing Complexity and Chaos in Times of Crisis. Seems like a very timely and much needed book. Can you tell me uh, about that and what advice it offers? Yeah, we've been working on it for about five months now. So the European Commission in uh, JRC, which is the Science and Knowledge Service, adopted Kinevin some time ago as a framework for policymaking. And so when COVID hit, we had a very quick conversation and we agreed it was an opportune time to actually put this together in the book. Yeah? And from my point of view, it's a bit weird because you normally publish the book, then you publish the field guide. But now we've done the field guide and now Mary and I are working on the book. But that may actually be a good way of doing it. So one of the things I had to do was to focus on making something which could be picked up by very busy senior executives without much theory. So what it basically does is it goes through four distinct stages when you hit a crisis. Assessment, adaption, acceptation, and transcend. So assess, adapt, accept, transcend. So the assessment stage is quite simply, is it really a crisis or not? You know, and have you got a contingency plan? So if you've got a contingency plan, you've already scenarioed this. It's not a crisis. You can just implement the plan. But assuming you haven't got a plan and you didn't expect it, then you're into a different situation. And this is where leaders, and there's a whole body of rules in this for how leaders should behave. The only time a leader makes a decision in a crisis is right up front. And they make draconian rapid decisions to create breathing space downstream. Thereafter, they distribute decision-making and centralized coordination, which is actually what good leaders do anyway. Good leaders hardly ever make decisions. It's generally a sign of failure if you've got to do that. So if you look at what the New Zealand Prime Minister did, she actually broke the law. I mean, it was illegal for her to lock down New Zealand, but she realized she had to. And she did it, and they've had, what, 25 deaths. Now, you compare that with the UK and the US. So that issue about doing decisive actions to create options is a key one. In the adapt phase, you're then very quickly adjusting. There's a whole body of techniques here based on Kinevin, particularly about how do you understand which type of experts you bring in? So do you accept expertise? Do you conflict expert? Do you run hypotheses? Do you engage human sensor networks? The whole exception phase, that's after the pivot. So after you've assessed and adapted, you can now start to look towards the future. And acceptation is a key concept in complexity science. It's the radical repurposing of things you're already good at to handle novelty. Because in a crisis, you don't have time to invent from scratch. Yeah, you've got to repurpose fast. So there's a whole section on that. 
And then transcend is all about how do you learn? How do you actually create capability for the future? And that's actually important. I mean, I said on a podcast the other day, COVID is God's gift to humanity because it's a wake-up call. And it's not the worst plague we're going to see in my lifetime. And I'm 67 in a month's time which is quite scary when you think about that. And that's before you get things like global warming and political disturbance. So one of the things we're trying to build here is a sort of process and capability by which organizations can create high levels of resilience going forward. And it being an EU field book gives it that sort of comfort factor for executives in terms of adoption. That's that's so interesting. And there's so much to unpack there. And it's such great advice. One thing that you, that you mentioned that I think is so important is one of the things that I talk to leaders about a lot is creating plans with optionality. Mm. And you mentioned contingency planning. That really is key, right? Because if you have, if you have options baked into your plan, if you have contingency plans in place, then crises are immediately much easier to manage. You do need to be careful. I mean, about 30 years ago, I created a matrix which went known, unknown, and knowable in terms yes. of and whatever. And I, I remember presenting that in Arlington once, and then two weeks later, I couldn't use it again for some time. Is that uh, where Donald Rumsfeld got his known unknowns? Yeah, we think so, right? And um, he forgot about the unknowable element. So there are two <laughs> things to get, right? One is there are situations which are unknowable. Now, or they're what we call known unknown knowns, yeah? So people in the network know that COVID is possible, but as a leader, you can't handle it. If you think about people in leadership positions, they've got thousands of experts coming into them every day with potential crises, and they have limited resources and limited cognitive time. So there is this issue, and that's why the, the, the two-stage process at the start is kind of like, do we have a contingency plan? Did we anticipate it? If there's any doubt about either of those, you actually have to do something radically different. And that's where this whole issue about constraints, which is so important to complexity, constraints are the only thing you can actually manage in a complex system. That's really an interesting point. I also think another point that I think is so important is this idea of taking the big action, but then allowing distributed decision-making to take place to advance. It's kind of like in the military, they talk about mission command or, or off-tracks tactic if you're, if you're German and commander's intent and allowing the lowest echelon possible to make decisions. I think it's also, it's this question of the strategic corporal. Mm-hmm. I remember doing work on small group command in DC once, and I still remember the four-star general saying to me at one point, would you go outside and have a conversation with my sergeant so he can tell you what you need to tell me because I can't hear it from him? I mean, that was a very wise guy, all right? But the reality is NCOs make decisions which affect work politics. But I think it's more than that. I think there are a couple of aspects here. One thing, I do do a lot of work on military decision-making and look at how we can bring that across. Uh, Military decision-making, though it appears hierarchical, actually isn't because it's based on crews. So it's role and role dependency and role interaction, which is why you've got very fast substitutions. Yeah. Now, okay, occasionally you get the sort of Patton v. Montgomery type issue, but the overall system is pretty bloody resilient anyway, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the key thing about crew structures is they distribute decision-making to the person who knows, has the information to make the right decision. 
Now, in a crisis, that's even more important because actually, if you start to make decisions, things will go wrong pretty damn fast. The whole essence of complexity is you ain't going to get it right for some time. So it's better for people around you to get it wrong in smaller amounts faster and for you to just coordinate and allocate and reallocate resource. Um, because actually part of your role as a leader is to maintain confidence. And you don't make confidence if you make decisions late. I mean, UK and US were prime examples of that. And if you haven't got time to coordinate, because you know, one of the big things which happened in the UK is the prime minister's senior advisor broke the rules. That meant everybody else thought they could break the rules too. And he didn't act decisively to deal with that. So you need the cognitive time to look at the whole system and understand the diverse perspectives and just do small interventions here and there because you're managing the emergence of a, of a coherent position downstream. And also you can't possibly process all the information. So I'll give you another example on that. Um, one of the things that you face, I mean, we, we saw this, I'll take the UK example. There was a massive conflict between epidemiologists and behavioral scientists. I'm not sure behavioral economics justifies the word science, but that's a debate for another time. So they're both saying very different things. You know, one is herd immunity, one talks about the consequence. One of the things we built into the field guide is a thing called a trioptican, which is where you bring experts together with junior experts together in a highly structured process over 24 hours. And you just sit and watch the, watch the stage conflict and decide what to do. You don't allow three weeks of lobbying and discussions and committee meetings. So part of this is, is acting decisively to handle process and handle divergency of opinion about what you should do. Well, that's so important because, I mean, there, there's so much evidence that experts are sometimes the worst people at making the prediction about the area that they have expertise in because they become reliant on their past experience so much they think they've cracked the code and yeah. that while they can provide input they're not always the best at seeing what they don't see because they they don't necessarily yeah, challenge I mean, their own assumptions i mean but part of what you know what we say is you kind of like got a, a four-stage process all right once you, you stabilize the situation pretty damn fast right there's then a whole bunch of experts who you now realize you should have listened to yeah, so bring them into the office, beg forgiveness and give them some cash and let them get on with it. It's kind of like the rule. <laughs> the second one is you've got conflict between experts. Well, that's where you have the staged environment. The third one is you've got multiple hypotheses. Lots of people have different hypotheses about what will work or won't work. And that in Kinevin terms is where you start to do parallel safe-to-fail experiments, which are literally can fail quickly. And then the fourth stage is, and this is where human sensor networks come in, this is one of the big themes of this, is you need to build networks of citizens and employees who can give you real-time feedback, yeah? is you actually test those networks for hypothesis generation. And the reason you do that is the famous experiments on this. So if you give a bunch of radiologists of actual x-rays, ask them to look for anomalies like cancer, and on the final x-ray, you put a picture of a gorilla, which is 48 yep. times the size of a cancer nodule. 83% of radiologists won't see it, yeah? even though their eyes physically scan it. Right? So we call this finding the 17%. Yeah? What you need to do is to find the hypotheses which aren't visible to you. And that, if you've got a human sensor network, you can literally do in 10 or 15 minutes because you don't have to commission inquiry. And part of the transcend process in the field book is if you haven't had it for this crisis, I call it building networks for ordinary purpose you can activate for extraordinary need. 
and you build those networks downstream for the next time around. That's really good advice. Let's talk a little bit more about the Kinevin framework. For those who aren't familiar with it, what is it and, and where does it come from, Dave? It's a sense-making framework. It's actually evolved over 21 years. We had the 21-year celebration this January. I hadn't realized. Happy birthday. How, well, no, and the team put a book together, which is now on Amazon. I didn't even know about the book. They conned me into writing one chapter for it, but I didn't know I was writing the chapter. <laughs> um, Kinevin is, comes from a tradition called naturalizing sense-making, which is now acknowledged as one of five distinct schools of sense-making. Um, the other is kind of like the traditional IT-based approach of data information, knowledge, et cetera. You then got Carl Weick, who's the granddaddy of this, Brenda Dervin, who's in postmodernism, Gary Klein in cognitive science, and my school, which is now the fifth, all right, um, finally acknowledged. And what that does is it takes natural science as a constraint. So what we actually say, in the conditions of uncertainty, you can't take a case-based approach. And if you look at most frameworks, there's somebody studies 20 or 30 organizations, they create a framework. And that's not how Kinevin was done. Kinevin started with the science. So it basically said, okay, in nature, we know there are three types of systems, chaotic, complex, and ordered. And there's a phase shift transition between them. And there's a triple point, if you know that in, in physics, where mm -hmm. something can become solid or liquid gas. That's the central domain of Kinevin, which is called confused. Yeah. It's the point where many things are possible. Mm -hmm. And so what actually happened with Kinevin is kind of like it started off with me re-adapting something from Max Boasso on knowledge management. When I worked in IBM and we discovered informal networks are more important than formal systems, which IBM hated me for, <laughs> I, I still remember going to the chief knowledge officer and saying the ratio between formal and informal is 1 to 64. And she said, well, how do we make them all formal? And it was, oh, my God, you haven't got the point, All right. So that's where Kinevin came from, right? It came from that concept, then it became adopted as strategic. And it developed into five domains, so order split into two, uh, which was where the you know, cause and effect is self-evident and where it requires expertise. And then we started to introduce liminality, i.e. states of transition between domains. And then finally, the latest edition, which is called Aparia, um, which is deliberately creating a state of deliberate confusion, so you open up possibilities which is also in the field guide. So the purpose of Kinevin is to help people work out where they are and what type of movement they want and what sort of decision they should make. But its foundation is what we call praxis. So the, it's the interaction of theory with practice. It's not derived from practice. It's not empirical in that sense. Interesting. And as you talk about, you have the, the different types of problems ranging, ranging from simple complicated, complex. The present pandemic is a perfect example of a complex problem, is it not? Well, it is, but aspects of it are complicated. And that's, that's also where constraint mapping comes in. Because, you know, if you look at constraints, they can be internal or external, right? They can be resilient, or they can be robust. And there's a critical concept I invented some time ago, of what's called a dark constraint. So you can see that something is having an influence, but you can't work out what it is, right? And the amount of the past that you can't explain through the constraints you can map in the present is the dark constraint factor. It's the level of risk you are going forward. So I think people, you sometimes see people say, oh, it's complex, it's all emergent, we can't do anything. And the answer is, well, yes, you can. It's interesting, I'm working with Nora Bateson at the moment, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, and I've got a lot of time for Nora. 
Uh, we come from very different traditions, but both of us absolutely insist on the need for rigor, right? It, once you understand that things are uncertain, you have to be more rigorous than otherwise. And you can't get into this quasi-mysticism of, oh, it's complex, it's emergent, anything goes. The answer is you can manage the constraints and you can change the constraints and you can manage what you give energy to and what you don't give energy to. And I often say, I mean, this is probably one of the key differences between complexity theories of leadership and systems thinking theories of leadership. And please don't confuse complexity with systems thinking. They're very different. Indeed. Complexity, you focus on how things connect, not what they are. In fact, I was just come off a call this afternoon working through a whole bunch of leadership programs we're developing for the health service in the UK. And they're all about getting leaders to understand that what matters is how they connect with people, not what their innate qualities are. Um, because all a leader can do is to catalyze the potential of the present. And therefore, you have to understand that. And when, when can you or can you not catalyze it? That's so interesting. One of the, the aspects of Kenevan that, that I find particularly useful in this present situation that we're dealing with is the idea that when you're confronted with a complex problem, the, the appropriate response, if you will, is, is to probe, sense, yeah. And react. And, and in my mind, the way I explain it to some of the leaders I've worked with is there's two things you can't do right now. One is, as you put, you can't wait and see because this is not going to sort itself out anytime soon. And you can't sit and do a SWOT analysis of, of, of the COVID pandemic and, and, you know, make your best decision and then go play golf. And it's kind of like sailing in my mind. You're constantly tacking to maintain the course you want to go on. Yeah, I mean, the sailing metaphor is an interesting one. And you're talking to an ex-fireball helmsman. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And remember, the key on dinghy racing is the positioning before the start come, right? And the way you do things. Sorry, this is, I'm, I'm going back to my misspent youth, all right? Of, no, please, keep going. Hanging out on trapeze boats, right? I think the key thing everybody gets wrong on complexity is they think it's about doing a single experiment, which it isn't. Right, because it's, I mean, the interesting fact is if you do anything novel, it always works the first time anyway. It's called Hawthorne <laughs> effect. The key thing on complexity is to say what, the first question isn't what should I do, but what are the coherent hypotheses about what would make a difference? And coherence is really important. And if some of your viewers are offended by this, I don't apologize, all right? So <laughs> we, we know that evolutionary theory is kind of like wrong in many ways. We're learning as we go. But what we do know is coherent to the facts, whereas young earth creationism is incoherent to the facts, so it's not worth pursuing. So that key concept from philosophy of science is vital, is what's coherent and what's incoherent. And if you have a coherent hypothesis, you give it a small amount of resource and you run a safe to fail experiment, but you run them in parallel, not in sequence. And what actually happens is the parallel experiments change the dimensions of the space so that you can see what you can do. It's not, and we call them probes, not experiments. Mm -hmm. Because experiments, people think succeed or fail. Yeah, well, actually probes change the space. It's rather like military. I mean, you know, every time I've explained this at um, Quantico or at the Naval Staff College or whatever, they get, the senior commanders get this straight away. You do multiple probes in parallel, you see what happens. Yeah, and you actually know that you may have got them all wrong, but it doesn't matter. You do that sort of parallelism to see. And I think that's the thing executives need to be aware of. It also reduces the cognitive load and cost because, I mean, I've been a, I've been a C-level exec, right? 
Mm-hmm. I'm trying to explain this to people. You know, half a dozen people come into your office. You've got three minutes to make a decision. And every, of them has, every one of them has spent their entire life working on the problem. And they get upset when you get it wrong. Mm-hmm. And the answer is you, you can't possibly, all right? And then you, you, know, you commit for secondary investigation or you have all more meetings. That's a waste of time. Which of those ideas are coherent? What can you do with a small amount of resource in the next month so that I know whether you're right or wrong? That's the question you ask. And then you go. So you bring up an interesting point, which is, you know, putting yourself in the seat of the C-suiter and looking at how to make better decisions, particularly in the face of, of disruption or complexity. And on one hand, you have this very edifying thing happening right now where I think a lot of leaders are looking at things like the Kinevin framework and other things to become better decision makers. Mm -hmm. And they understand that decision making is challenging and that they need to equip themselves with tools to make better decisions. At the same time, you've got the big consultancies who really promote a linear causality approach to problems. And they are often the voice that has the final say, I find in a lot of organizations. For the same reason, you know, people said, you know, back in the day that no one ever got fired for hiring IBM. No one ever gets fired for hiring McKinsey or Deloitte. Yeah, no, we we all both know that one. I I think there's a couple of things on this one. Remember, the big management consultancies rose on the back of systems thinking and no Mm -hmm. thought as it goes. Because what actually happened is systems thinking came through. You've got business process re-engineering. You've got ERP systems. It basically created a market for large teams of what I call semi-house trained polecats, otherwise known as recently graduated MBAs at $5,000 a day, right? And consultants went from genuine apprentice models, like partner to consultant was one to five, one to six, to one to 50, one to 60. And what that means is they want a recipe they can roll out because utilization is everything, Yeah. And the problem is that's a context-free recipe in what is a context-specific world. So I I think that is going to break and it doesn't work anyway. I think the other thing is actually it generally is not about decision-making. As I said earlier, the key skill of of a leader is to manage the environment so people make the right decisions anyway. If you're making decisions, it actually means you failed to manage the ecosystem properly. Well, it's interesting because there's kind of, in my mind, at least in the United States, a couple of different models of leaders that have emerged in the in the past several decades. And as you may know, my, my mentor was Alan Mulally, the, the former CEO of, of Ford and Boeing. And, and what I learned from Alan, what he talks about is, is the job of the leader, just as you say, is to listen first mm. and to enable. So it's kind of like being the icebreaker that clears the way for the people who know what to do to execute. So if you look at Ford Motor Company, for instance, when Alan took over in in the end of 2006, he almost every lever that he pulled to save Ford Motor Company was something that someone inside Ford was already advocating for, was already arguing for. And what he did was listen to them and then enable them to do it. And I spoke with the people who came up with every single one of these plans when I was writing my book on, on, on Ford's turnaround. And they all told me the same thing. I said to them, what would have happened if Alan hadn't come here? And they all said the same thing. Easy. We would have run out of money before we ever got this done. What he did 
was clear a way through the bureaucracy, the the culture, the the hierarchy, and allow us to execute. Uh, Lou, now, Lou, Lou Gerstner, I knew well, did the same in IBM. Exactly. Um, now, in contrast, though, you have this model that that comes, I think, from Jack Welch in this country of the CEO who's got all the answers, who you know shoot from the hip, blow things up, and you get points for for bold action. You know, decisive. Yeah. I'm not so sure. I mean, I mean, it's quite interesting. I mean, I've I've seen a book on leadership which took Steve Jobs, Jack Welch, Lou Gerstner, yeah, mm -hmm. and said they all had common characteristics. Now I knew all three. Mm -hmm. All right. I mean, they had nothing in common except the degree of narcissism in each case. Right. <laughs> um, Welch actually is a good example of complexity. Um, he created some simple rules. Mm -hmm and made decisive decisions within that. So he wanted to be number two or number one in each industry sector if it wasn't, he closed it. He actually created a lot of autonomy. Um, and he also knew how to break the rules. So he would break his own rules. I mean, the people that came after him didn't do that. So you get, you know, two guys who didn't get the job, one ends up in Telstra and gets fired pretty quickly. The other ends up in 3M and also gets fired when they realize he's destroying innovation because they don't know, and that they're implementing a recipe based on partial understanding. So I, I think, although I agree with you, I think it is a problem, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I mean, I've often said this, we do a lot of work on um, culture mapping. Mm -hmm. And if I look at some of the work we've done in Latin America, right, where we've been working with American consultants, it's a real problem because People choose to become Americans, so they have a very different attitude. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So America is actually kind of like, well, it used to be monocultural, even though it was multi-ethnic. It's now tricultural because of this, you know, the red, blue, and other splits. But fundamentally, mm -hmm. it works in a different way, and it's got this concept of the leader who takes us across the Great Plains to California and varied those sort of be built in it. And it's also, there's also a religious link here. I said the other day, slightly tongue in cheek, that Billy Graham is responsible for much of what is wrong with American management. Hmm. Because it created this concept of the conversion experience coming to the mercy seat and accepting the new way of working. And you can see that in a lot of organizational change, whereas evolutionary approaches kind of like aren't there so much. Yeah? But I say the great leaders who I've known actually do that. Lugos was brilliant. I mean, I, I trained his top 300 for him, which was weird being a band 10, right? But I still remember the first time he gave a lecture to them. He said, okay, you, you've all got, you have 300 people, all right? And every, every six months, 30 left and 30 joined. So it was a pretty savage environment, yeah? Yeah. Actually, I think it's a brilliant idea because I, I was training one group of 30 and he opened it up and he said, you've all succeeded so far by being selfish bastards and making your target. He said, now you've got to carry on making your targets, but you've got to learn to collaborate. And he said, most of you won't make the switch. And he said, don't worry, when we fire you out of this group, you still have a job, you still have your share options, but you'll never make board. Interesting. And that was, that, that was actually really interesting because and he, he, was, he was always creating an ecosystem. And it was big contrast with him and Sam. I mean, you could walk into Lou's office at Armok and scream at him if you wanted. He didn't mind. He was open. You know, you, you, you getting into an area that is probably the area that I struggle with the most and probably get asked about the most as well, which is when, when the right approach, when the right methodology, when the right processes or practices run into culture, what guarantees, if anything, that 
sound practice can can cut through culture in the long run. I think, well, it's the old thing about culture eats strategy for breakfast, mm -hmm. um, which Peter Drucker famously said. I think people get culture wrong. Culture is an emergent property of multiple interactions over time. And I think the big mistake that systems thinking, or more specifically systems dynamics and cybernetics made, is they look at the properties of an emergent process and they try and achieve the properties. Yeah, so they say, you know, these 10 companies, you know, leaders do this sort of thing. How do we train leaders to do that? Now, that's just bad logic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what you've got is a process which arises over many years, right? So Steve, let's take Steve Jobs as an example, right? And I have the proud distinction of having a pile of books thrown at me by Steve Jobs with all the <laughs> autobiography. And that was when Next failed. If Next hadn't failed, we wouldn't have OS and we wouldn't have Apple, right? And you, you look at those histories, you see people in different positions working in, in very different ways yeah, as you move forward. But the culture arises from the things that they do. So, for example, if we do a culture map of a company, you know, we don't start with leaders and say what culture you want, because that's the wrong question. We start by asking all of the employees, what story would you tell your best friend if they were offered a job in your company? Hmm. And then we get them to interpret that story into a framework based on cultural anthropology. And then we draw contour maps for the executive and we say, that's your culture. And then they can look at it and say, well, I want more of that and less of that. Now, that's actually a whole way you do change. How do I achieve more of these stories and fewer of those stories everybody can buy into? Yeah, and, and that's, that's how you handle culture. But you really change culture by what you do, not by what you say. And the problem with the big consultancies, and if I'm being wicked, I'd also blame Freud for this. Mm -hmm. Psychoanalysts have too much influence on organizational change anyway. You know, they're, they're, they're all therapists and they think the organization <laughs> until you confess your sins and you know, articulate it. And um, the thing I always say to executives, if you've got negative stories about it, you, go and do something which makes it impossible for people to tell the story. Don't tell people it's wrong. Yeah, and you can do things very quickly that way in terms of change. So I think this ecological approach is very different. It's kind of like, yeah, what are the constraints? Can I manage the constraints? Can I manage this fixed constraint, make it more permeable? The new stuff we're doing, we just spent three years working on a complexity-based approach to design thinking. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the current approach is very linear. If I see that bloody double diamond again, I will go insane. But a key element is to build you know, what type of scaffolding do you build and what interactions do you define? So the way you design an organization is you create a scaffolding, you define interactions, then you see what emerges. And the things which are beneficial, you give more resource to, and the things which aren't, you take resource away from. Right? Now, that's actually resilient, low cost, and highly sustainable, whereas big organizational change initiatives just reward the game players. And I remember I worked with Jan Letchley when he was at SKB. And one of the heuristics we developed is anybody who looks good to the merger team in the first three months should probably be fired. Hmm. Yeah, the people you really need to keep are the people who are just assuming that they should carry on doing the jobs of the company, not the people who are putting all their effort into the game. And any big initiative, and I always say, if you want to have a change initiative, do not announce a change initiative because it just flushes out the game players. That's so interesting. You know, when you were talking about, you know, changing the narrative and responding to perceptions that are negative about a company. The company that came to my mind that I saw do that most effectively was Toyota. First off, Toyota 
has a longstanding policy, unwritten rule, if you will, of under-promising and over-delivering. But then when they ran into their crisis with unintended acceleration, Akio Toyota kind of jumped into the mix and took charge and basically told the PR people, the lawyers and all of this, stop trying to say that that we're not the problem. Stop trying to blame other people for this. Stop trying to avoid responsibility, accept responsibility, compensate the the people who lost their lives or were injured in crashes and explain what we're going to do to fix this. And that was a very radical move for an automaker. And it was one that I know he took strongly against the advice of his, his attorneys at the time. But it was about what you're talking about. It was about changing the narrative and making it impossible to say that this is a company that doesn't understand it made a mistake. Now, there's a quite an interesting two parallel cases which happened on that. So Perrier had a water contamination incident. Yes. The first people heard of it was a story of Perrier withdrawing their water from the market before anybody got affected. So that actually worked for them. And then you look at that against Firestone and, and Ford, was it? Ford, yeah. Yeah. Who just spent months arguing about who was responsible and both brands were damaged, right? So I think, exactly. yes, you see that. Yeah. And I think that's deeply problematic, right? But I think, you know, you can go back to Aristotle on this, all right? So when, when, and people forget this. Aristotle famously said, you can't do ethics by rules because you can't know what will happen, but you have to train people to be virtuous. Now, part of the problem we got with leaders at the moment is people hop leadership roles every two years. Now, this was a phenomenon in IBM. And what we actually saw happened, you know, and I proved this, but they wouldn't do anything about it, is a whole breed of managers emerged. I'll call them Andrews for the moment, which is a real name, so everybody will recognize who I'm talking about. We're basically <laughs> moving and rape and pillage for 18 months and then move on and leave shit for their successor because they could always achieve short-term targets. And I think that's one of the problems. And income disparity now is such a level. This issue about moral or ethical responsibility for your employees has gone out of the window. Yeah, And one of the reasons, I think, for that is the engineering metaphor, again, which came in systems dynamics. It's all about measurement and output and targets. People aren't actually measuring the soft side of what, you know, what's the value of loyalty? Because that's huge. Yeah. And I remember, I mean, I was speaking at a conference in San Diego, and I made, I was, Drucker was the keynote after me. And I made the mistake of doing the, you know, mistake, which I don't make anymore, but I was young and naive in those days, of saying we want to abandon Taylorism, right? And I got this sort of, you know, I knew somebody who knew Taylor. It was rather like the famous vice presidential debate. And I ended up as a puddle of humiliation on the floor of the Hotel Dell, yeah. It was a three-year-old genius destroying me, but he decided I was redeemable, so he took me out for dinner, and then we taught leadership together. Right? <laughs> and one of the things we both came to the conclusion on was that actually scientific management and complexity have a lot in common, because they automated what could be automated, but they left huge space for human judgment and for apprentice models of learning. So it used to be managers more or less grew up in the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes you brought in somebody from outside, but it wasn't the norm. Yeah, and they knew people and they knew connections, and kind of like it was fairly obvious who was going to be the new CEO. What you then got with this, with the scientific, you know, the revolution that came in in the 80s, you now get people who do a BA in business studies, an MBA in an elite school, become an elite consultant, and then move sideways to run a company with no experience whatsoever. 
So they only know how to run it through spreadsheets. And they haven't got any tacit knowledge to understand how to do other things. And that, I think, is the reason why the sort of turnover of companies and the rapid you know, mutation is, is, is a real problem. And I got drunk very, I won't say with who, right, with a very senior manager in IBM one night. He had a whole new crate of Pinot Noir. <laughs> about two countries where this could have taken place. And we both had accountancy in our background. So after finishing off one bottle, we decided we'd go through all of IBM's acquisitions and add up what IBM should be worth if it had just kept them at their, their previous level of growth. And it was actually quite scary. I bet. Actually, IBM had managed a sort of growth like this by basically cannibalizing acquisitions and using its capital budget to do that. And one of the concerns, I, and you see this in Silicon Valley, right? in that people aren't trying to build the next Apple, they're trying to build the next thing that Apple will buy. Yes. Right? And again, that's probably, well, the other problem is that most of them take Anne Rand seriously after puberty, but that's a sort of a narrative <laughs> anyway, right? Um, but this inherent, I mean, I, I mean, semi-serious here. I mean, I, I work with yeah. San Diego VCs and San, San, um, San Jose VPs. And it's actually quite interesting. You go up into the valley and it's kind of like, well, you haven't made a million by the time you're 25. You're obviously incompetent. And gone um, bankrupt at least once in the process. The age, a little bit more about health, but that may be the age profile. And I think it's this lack of awareness of context and this lack of awareness of sort of moral responsibility. And that isn't sustainable. And I think one of the things this COVID has taught us is you can't sustain a, an economy with that sort of attitude. Yeah, it just doesn't work. Yeah. And you can see that with what's now. So we're about to move into a very different age where the synthesis between industry and government is going to have to be a lot tighter. Yeah. And where simple sort of money-based rationing isn't going to work. Yeah? And it, yeah, it was quite entertaining. Our, one of our former prime ministers, our prime ministers have been competing. Each new one is more incompetent than the previous one. <laughs> Successive incompetence. One of the ones who had the misfortune of having to hold Donald Trump's hand, all right, which is Theresa May, once famously said there isn't a magic money tree. Well, you know, one of the things COVID has taught us is there are magic money forests when you really need it. There certainly seems to be. You know, you mentioned something that a couple minutes ago that I, I think is so critical because I think it is the rocks on which so much good decision making is broken. And that is short term thinking driven by the need to produce short term results driven by, in my opinion, the public markets. How do you counter that? How do you, in an age when so many companies and so many leaders are incentivized and live and die by their quarterly numbers, do you get people to plan and make decisions for the long term? I think it's actually difficult. I mean, I mean, I've taught at West Point a couple of times, right? And they're the brightest kids I know. But the West Point honor code is actually really important. Yeah. Yeah. And we haven't got the equivalent in industry. So we haven't got the right inhibition. Yeah. And this sort of anything goes if it's right. I mean, the American legal system, having just spent a year involved in it, is basically who's got the most money wins. Yep. And even if you win, you can't get compensation because they just don't get me there, right? Yep. So I think that system is problematic. And it's quite significant that people like, for example, Apple couldn't care less about their shareholders. Yeah. And Richard Branson bought his shares back rather than be subject to short-term targets. Yes. Yeah. So I think... And I think that, yeah, you've also got this problem is most of the wealth is created by people manipulating money rather than producing things of value. Now, I think that is, I think COVID is a chance for us to rethink some of that. 
right? Um, because it isn't sustainable in that way. And I think the company's longevity, you mentioned Toyota, for example, right? Yes. Look at people like Toyota, like Apple, like Google. Yeah, they have long-term relationships with their employees and their customers. And they don't sacrifice those for short-term. Yeah? And, yeah, the short-term focus companies have very high turnover. That's a really good point. Toyota actually does a 100-year plan. Akio Hassan uh, shared it with me. Yeah. Way, look at there's a video which says how did the toyota way come about produced by the agile team yes and ends with me so i'm quite pleased with that one that's in the public domain oh we'll have to we'll include a link to that in the show notes and we'll also obviously include a a link to uh the kinevin framework as well this has been such a great conversation dave just in closing you know if you're could speak directly to a, a leader who's listening to this, who's who's facing the challenges presented by by COVID and the the economic challenges that are likely to to mount in the months and years ahead as a result of this. What would be the one piece of advice you would give them? Build a sense of network of your customers and your staff and use it. You need a diversity of feedback on situational assessment, and you need micro scenario planning. Yeah, on a distributed basis. And that, that's all in the new field guide. Excellent. Wonderful. And how can people get the field guide? Our website, which is Kenevin Center, that will have all the links on it. Great. We'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. David, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much. Pleasure. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll tune in next time. Until then, this is Bryce Hoffman signing off. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. To subscribe to Bryce's free newsletter, visit his website, brycehoffman.com. And don't forget to follow Bryce on social media. You can find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Bryce Hoffman, all one word. That's B-R-Y-C-E-H-O-F-F-M-A-N. And to learn more about Bryce's company, Red Team Thinking, visit us at redteamthinking.com.